Welcome to Conversations with Claire. I'm your host, Claire Bates. I'm a movement, nutrition, and mindset coach through my app, Wellness with Claire. Podcast host, coach at The Collective in Austin, Texas, sober alcoholic, brand builder, and competitive hybrid athlete. I've created this podcast to share inspiring stories and have meaningful conversations in hopes that we can create community together to learn and grow. Oh, and I hope to make you laugh. <laughs> Welcome to Conversations with Claire. Let's talk about coaching and how to get from where you are now to where you want to be. Wellness with Claire is my very own coaching platform where I offer personalized meal plans, personalized workout plans based on your goals, accountability through community and weekly group coaching calls, mindset coaching and tracking features for results. I also offer one-on-one -on -one coaching, which gives you full app access, direct access to me via WhatsApp and 100% accountability with me, including weekly video calls. Wellness is a mental, physical and spiritual experience. The system works together as a whole, and I'm here to help you live in alignment with your principles and values and actualize a quality of life beyond your current dreams. Check the show notes or the links in bios on socials to find more information about how to get involved with Wellness with Claire today. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Conversations with Claire. Today, my guest is German, so I am going to attempt to properly pronounce his name. Wish me luck, guys. Mo, easy. We're, we're just doing Mo for short. Mo, first, scale of one to 10, how did I do? It's a decent seven. <laughs> <laughs> Would you like to pronounce your name? Well, it, yeah, it's first if you do it in German, but I mean, who does? You, you were very close. That's kind of you. What we know immediately is he's kind. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So Mo is the co-founder of Hyrox, which is the World Series of Fitness Racing. We will talk more about that later. He is also a three-time Olympic medalist in field hockey, and you have a hockey World Cup in 2006. You were in the hockey World Cup. Was that field hockey? Yeah. Okay. Then also is a best-selling author. So Mo's been doing some things. So hello, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you for saying yes. So I always like to start the intro with like how we met for people. So for us, it's a bit different. You're literally in Germany right now and I'm here in the US. So you created the High Rocks Fitness Racing. And in the fall of 2021, so just last year, I think fall of 2021, I traveled to Colorado and spent some time with some friends and met one of your employees, Graham, shouts out Graham. And I just showed up to this facility and took this group of guys through a workout and he was in the group. So at the end of it, he was like, Hey, we do this thing. And it seems to align like a lot with what you're up to. And so that was my first exposure to High Rocks because High Rocks is still relatively new in the US. It has seen tremendous growth and I'm super excited to talk about that. So that was the first I had ever heard of it. So then from there, I'm like looking it up. What is it? I go do my first race in April in Dallas of this year and then managed to qualify for Worlds in Vegas in May of this year. So I ran both of those and then just recently ran the other one in Dallas again in November. And you were there. We briefly met there, but we still don't really know. I followed your race. I followed your race. I was watching you racing, basically. Yeah, <laughs> but I was busy dying. <laughs> <laughs> the race is hard, guys, but I also chose to do the women's elite. And so I bit off the hard one. So anyway, we really haven't gotten to spend a ton of time getting to know one another. So I'm super excited to do that. But I kind of just like to tie in all of the like how we met. So we got to meet there, but we haven't gotten to spend a lot of time speaking. So let's go ahead and just take you back. Let's go back to childhood. Let's talk about where did you come from before we got to all of this high rock stuff that we do today and building this international business that's going really well. Who was Mo growing up? Yeah, so it's difficult. I started playing field hockey when I was six. 
I'm just mentioning that because I really have to say that, I mean, I know it's not a big sport in the US comparable to a lot of other sports. And it's also not the biggest sport here in Europe or in Germany, but it was like the most important part of my life. So for the first 30 years of my life, when I turned six, so not the first, but from six to 35 or whatever, I was literally doing only field hockey, playing field hockey and thinking about that all day and all night. And I was always, when I was seven, I wrote into whatever, like these school books of friends, I, what do you want to be when you when you grow up? And it was, I want to be a hockey, it's called hockey in Germany. I know that's confusing for everyone in the US because hockey is a different thing there. But so I would say I want to be a professional hockey player. And, and then once I turned 17, it got me there. I got professional. I turned, I signed the first contract and so on and so forth. That was like, yeah, obviously, I mean, that was what I chose to do. And I never looked back. I never thought about anything else. I, I just played. I just did what I was okay at, at least. And I made my way. And um, I think a big part of that growing up was obviously like my family. So in Germany, that's, I really don't want to dive into it, but just briefly, it's different than in the US. So you do sport, you don't do sports in school. There's no system that makes you do any kind of sports in school or in college or whatever. So you have like your school. And then apart from that, you have the whatever sports club system. So you would go to whatever tennis, basketball training after school that has nothing to do with your school, which is completely different than the system in the US works. So I had my sports club where I would go after school with my brother every day and we would play hockey there, play some tennis there, play some basketball there, whatever. And um, yeah, just doing things that you do when you're very young and you hang around with your friends. I lost my dad when I was very young. It was always my brother and myself, basically. So we spent so much time growing up, playing sports, doing stuff, meeting friends. And I was very lucky in a way that I had this club this sports family growing up and it's very easy to get to like different friendship groups and squads and entourages that are not as healthy as the sports environment is so i have to say that's something if i look back i was probably very lucky growing up having this kind of environment that led me to a very let's say protected and healthy childhood yeah so since they are separated do you think that you could give like a range of the percentage of children that actually get into sport over in Germany? I cannot speak from like actual intel exactly. knowledge, but but I would say it's a very high number because the offer to understand that from a US perspective, the easiest way to explain it is in Germany, school ends early. So school would finish when you're like very young, school would finish at one. So then it's over and then you have the rest of the day and you would join a sports club. That is as I said, disconnected from the school, but it still exists in your local community and whatever. So there would be like a tennis club, a basketball club, a soccer club, a football club, and this is very separated. So I would say there is an opportunity for everyone to join a club. But to answer to your question, I would say like maybe 70% of the people would do that. Okay. And then is the club like you get, is it a structure where you get promoted to, how does that work as far as like the team that you get put on, you know, when you're six years old, does your performance on the field then dictate which team you get placed on moving forward? How does that system work? Yeah, exactly. That's pretty much how it is. You have the club and the club where I went, there would be kids from six to 18 and they have all their, obviously their age group. And then there's another separation from third team to the first team, depending on the strength of the player that starts a little later. It wouldn't with six, you wouldn't do that separation, but when they turn 12, 13, then it starts being more competitive. And that's, that's when, that, when that starts. But as we said before, I mean, this is a pretty normal growing up in Europe, I would say. And I was just lucky to be in that kind of environment. Yeah. But from a very early time in that, you were my identity is athlete. There are a lot of kids that, at least here in the U.S., that get placed in sports that don't ever feel like they identify as an athlete in any way. They're doing it because of the social experience or just because their parents are forcing them or whatever it is but it's not really because they love the sport. Whereas it sounds like for you, you really early and then really held on to for a very long time, your identity as an athlete, right? Yes. Although I have to say that the first motivation that I had and why I stick to it, got stuck with hockey was that I just love being with my friends and hockey is a team sport. So I spend a lot of time with my friends after school. We just went to the club together and we were there and we had an ice cream and I don't know, but just had a good time. And I think when I turned like 
pretty late actually when I turned like 16 maybe that's when I really started picking up that excitement and also the ambition to become a professional player I said that when I was six but I mean you know that's a different thing saying it and actually meaning it and trying to get there is a different thing for example now looking back at it from the days now and the high rocks and stuff I was not training to be a professional I was talented I have to admit that I was probably a lazy talent but I was good enough to embrace that so that was definitely helpful. Okay. And so you had one brother and you said that your father passed when you were pretty young. So you had a single mother. Yeah, exactly. And that was also obviously not a good thing. That led to me being very much self-responsible, self reliant in a way. Exactly. And uh, also I had my brother, you know, so being responsible in a way or at least feeling responsible for someone when you're nine is pretty early. And I think in the looking back at it, from nowadays, I would say that it made me very strong and very much feeling like being the caretaker for a lot of things very early. I keep saying nowadays, I know what I always say is probably one of the, let's say, three worst things that can ever happen to you. Then with nine years, being nine years old, that pretty much defines who you're going to be because that also led to me never really thinking that anything bad could happen because I've seen it. It's like, obviously having children and then thinking about something like that's a completely different ball game, obviously, but there are not many worse things in the world than losing your parent, especially when you're very young, you know? So I think that's not really a lot of things can shock me nowadays. Right. Yeah. You learned early that you had to be resilient. Like most children do not learn that at nine years old. They yeah. live a little bit more Luckily, of a comfortable I mean, life. And then eventually something happens. At some point you live enough life and something's going to happen and then you got to figure it out. So that instilled in you this responsible nature early, potentially, to just need to be, like you said, self-reliant. Yeah, I had no choice. I mean, yeah. So you feel like that was something you carried through. So you did go to university. Is that the appropriate term? It's the appropriate term, yeah. Okay, so you went to university in Germany. And so sport is still separated there. So you're doing school and you're doing sport separately. Is that correct? Yeah, well, that's where it becomes difficult because most of the professional athletes don't study because they make so much money early on that there's no real point, which is something that I really do not like about the system. So you would have like these right now, we're currently, I don't know, sorry, I don't know when this airs at the moment where we speak, there's the soccer World Cup happening in Qatar and all these players, none of them would have ever seen a college book or whatever at least the european players because they make so much money they really don't care i studied besides i did my bachelor and master psychology and was really very much focusing on that it was very interesting for me but i did it besides playing hockey so it took me probably like a couple of years longer than it would have taken me if i was just focusing on my studies but i felt that being always a very important part for me in the phase growing up after my 20s. Although I have to say that it was very challenging because we were away with the national team, the German national team for like 150 days a year, traveling around the world, playing tournaments and so on and so forth. So doing the studies besides was challenging, but I still felt that it was very necessary. What made you choose to prioritize education in conjunction with your sport? If that was uncommon, why did you choose to do that? Yeah, well, it was uncommon for the professional sports that make a lot of money. Field hockey is not a sport where you make a lot of money. So it was basically not a choice from that perspective because I knew one day I would stop playing and that's the day when I actually have to do something. Otherwise, I will never be able to provide for family or whatever. So I did that, but also I have to say not everybody's doing it. So to answer your question, I still chose it because I knew that I would need something like that besides having something to do apart from only thinking about hockey all day. That was really important for me. And even looking back at it, I, that was the best decision I could have ever done. Although I have to say it was difficult to prioritize at times because obviously you cannot try to do both things with 100% because there's only 100% to like, you know, spread across the tasks that you're doing in your life. Then also you can't do 50-50 because then you would suck at both. So the prioritization is really important and focusing on field hockey for like a major part of the day and then shifting all that focus to studies when it mattered. That was a big learning for me. Yeah. Okay. So you finished school and then you get a job? No, I finished school like university if you want. And then I 
played hockey for a couple of years and did my master's at a online university doing that for two years. And then after I finished that, I was focusing on, I worked part-time jobbing a little bit in an advertising company, but I knew I was playing until the Rio Olympics in 2016. That was supposed to be my last Olympic Games. So I was preparing myself before that, did a few jobs here and there, but I had already had this plan moving forward. And I was very lucky again, then uh, meet the team of my co-founders at the end of 2016, pretty much right after the Olympics. And in uh, yeah, January, we founded, founded Hyrox. Okay. So that sounds like there wasn't a ton of downtime between the two. It seems as though, based on what Hyrox is, how much it's grown in the time that it's existed and so on, that it sounds very purpose-driven. So did you start to, like, while you were still playing sport, did you start to feel this calling to head a different direction? Because Hyrox, I mean, this is a new and different thing. It's just entirely different than anything else, in my opinion. And so we can go ahead and explain that here in just a moment of what that actually is. but. Was there this lapse of time? Because I know a lot of people, whenever they identify as an athlete and then they transition out of that identity into whatever is next for them, there is oftentimes this period of uncertainty, discomfort, lack of identity. Did you experience any of that? Or did these people just have this thing that you could float right into? I mean, how did that go for you? Uh, Yeah, that's a good question because I experienced and I've seen this a hundred times with all my friends, everyone I know who is an athlete. One of my friends once did said a very smart thing. So he would say this, the day I quit and people don't think about that, I'm missing out on like, that's what he said back then, on 10K after tax a month. And athletes think that wherever they go, they will make that right after they finish their career. But that's just not the reality. No one in the real business world would take an athlete paying them whatever, like 16, 17 grand, because that's before tax what you would have to make in order to make those 10 grand uh, cash. And I thought about that was like 15 years ago or whatever, when he said that. And I was like, that's the first time I ever thought about what happens after your career, because you feel very comfortable. You make some money fairly enough while being a student, more than most of your friends make. So not enough to live ever after, but you can afford your car, your flat, your apartment, whatever. And then no one thinks about quitting. And I always say being an athlete or athletes die twice. That's like one of the catchphrases that I use talking about it, because I really think that's the truth. Because basically start from scratch. And even if you started doing something on the side before, I mean, no one calls you anymore. No newspaper is interested in you anymore. <laughs> the attention is gone. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, but it's a different thing. So what you were saying about this transition phase, I've seen this so many times, and I had the same experience in a different way. Because I have started without a big gap between being an athlete and then starting founding this company, I was actually still playing in Germany in the Bundes, in the first division league here while we already founded. So I just quit my international career, but I was still playing another season in Germany. So for myself needed, I would say at least 18 months, rather two years to not call myself a hockey player anymore. Also, it took me so much time to catch that fire. If you want to go wake up in the morning, go to the office and finding my new purpose. Cause my purpose was waking up in the morning and my schedule was clear. I had training at 8am. I had a brunch or whatever after that with my friends, a coffee. I went for a nap. I went to physio. I had another training session in the afternoon and I studied a little bit somewhere in between. That's it. Easy. And by the way, newspaper would call you in between or you would have a TV live interview or you would have like this gala night out with like the most famous people of your town, whatever. You met important people, many great connections and so on and so forth. And that suddenly stopped. So You're trying to find your way and navigate yourself through life. And it was a little bit easier for me as I didn't have to find my purpose because it was actually there, but it took me some time to accept it. Yeah. I love that perspective. I mean, I I love it. It's hard to know, but it's also just reality of 
of having to die twice. And, and I think that that's applicable, not just to athletes, certainly to athletes, but to many people, we experience different seasons. So because we exist within the fitness space, this is what we see all the time. And, and I love anyone who's a listener that's been a listener will know this about my story, but I did not grow up playing any sports. And so for me, I'm very different in the sense of the fact that I didn't get into a gym till I was in my twenties. And I didn't really start to believe in myself in a gym until 2020, which was two years ago. So a much later thing, I'm 30 now, but I do see it all of the time around the people that I'm around of they played sports growing up. That was their identity. And then they had to pivot and figure it out. But also being 30, a lot of my friends are around my age and we've gone through enough stuff in life. And maybe you got the degree and then you did the job for a while. And then you were like, this ain't it or whatever it is. There are so many different versions of, it's just so common to identify so heavily as one way. And then whenever you find yourself no longer resonating with what you're doing, or simply that for you, your career as an athlete at some point ends, you know, over here in the US, NFL is is a big one, right? Football, American football is a big one. So I'll use that as an example. That is such a an intense contact sport that the lifespans of those athletes is very short, because they get hit hard. And they get injuries. And so unfortunately, having to anticipate the reality that your lifespan as an athlete, at least that version of the athlete, you know, is going to have to pivot. And those pivot moments are hard. This also makes me think of, I've had to rewrite my bio over and over and over again this year. And for me, for six and a half years, I was in real estate before this. I was a real estate agent. That was my identity. You asked me who I am. That's who I am. That's what I do. And then I got launched into the fitness space last year in November. A brand asked me to come in and be the U.S. community lead. And we were navigating that relationship. And anyway, so I shut down my previous career and then I go do this thing. So I have this title, but then that didn't work out. And so then it's been this interesting thing all year of like, well, I guess I'm a podcast host. And by now it's already come so far of there's been so many iterations within this year of who is Claire? And at the end of the day, I'm just a person experiencing life, but we always have to attach our identity to what we do. And so it's been a fun year for me of having to rewrite that story on repeat. And thankfully, if you're in that season, whoever's listening of unsure, whatever, just plug away at things that you feel called to do, places that you feel some sense of purpose exist there as frequently as possible. Like you'll figure it out. You'll get there. So anyway, back to you. So this identity as an athlete, it takes you really 18 months, two years to start to really transition to feel like, okay, I have a new identity now. And now it is this thing that I'm building, High Rocks, right? So how did High Rocks get started? Because this is totally different. So what happened? Yeah. So first of all, I don't want to and cannot take any credit. Like this has been an amazing team effort from the start. So one of my founding partners, Christian in the US already, also he least an amount of time there also with me. He had this blurred thought of that there's void in the fitness world, like something that's not filled there, which is like a kind of a gap. I would now say a gap between like this amazing concept called CrossFit and this amazing concept called obstacle racing. So he said, I don't know what it is, but there is something missing because the one thing CrossFit is amazing training method, but it's not mass participation sport, like where people can sign up and have an event where they can participate, like in a marathon, for example. Like every weekend you can run a marathon all over the world. So he was like, you cannot have on-site CrossFit event every weekend somewhere in the world. And on the other hand, you had obstacle racing and, and we were looking at it from a perspective that would, where I would say it's cool. And I did most of them also, but it's not really sustainable. It's not like I wouldn't do six Tough matters. Other people do, but I don't see why I would do it. I do it. It's a team thing. I experience it. It's quite of a cool thing to do, but I don't have to do 10. So we were like, what's the logic? Why is a marathon so, so successful? Why does a marathon work? Why does triathlon work globally in every country in the world? Why do people do that many times? Because it's time-tracked. Because there's a logic why they want to be better than themselves. Some want to be better than others, but many of these people just want to beat themselves. They want to be better than they were last time. What's the first question you would ask a friend if they ran a marathon? 95% of the people would answer, 
that the first question they would ask their friends is, what time did you finish it? Absolutely. And that's clear. And the funny thing is, the answer doesn't matter. Because if you answer two hours 30, I would say, wow, amazing. If you tell me four hours 30, I would say, wow, wow. amazing. Respect. You know what nice. I mean? So it really doesn't matter because it's your own, set, your own goal. You set the goal for yourself. And I appreciate, I would appreciate that as your friend. So we said, okay, we need to think about the marathon for fitness. What could that be? So that everybody can take part. And then long story short, that's how we started thinking about it. And um, very quickly, there was this idea on the table saying, okay, it has to be running and workouts, however you want to define them. And then we really started experimenting, talking about the workouts, talking about the necessities behind it. So it had to be judgeable. It had to be accessible for everybody that literally their workouts that easier for men. There are workouts that are easier for women. There are workouts that can cost you like a lot of exhaustment when it's late in the competition. So for just a simple example, box jumps were on the table for a long time. Why did they fall out? Very simple. Because first of all, you would need one judge per box. Second of all, after like one hour into the race, it's very dangerous if people, you know, would crack their ankle on one of those boxes or fall down while jumping down or jump on the foot of a judge or whatever which is way too dangerous. So we had so many like little things we had to think about in order to make it a globally accessible, at the same time, judgeable and in a way doable sport for a mass of people, but still be good enough to have the chance to have a professional scene and people that really want to do this for as their sport. So that's how we started. So that conversation started in 2016. 17, 17 in March. In March of 2017, that conversation starts, you start playing with it, you are working with the co-founder, so it's two of you at this time really iterating on this or more than? It's three of us at that time, plus group of three other people growing to five maybe in that year that took a major part in thinking everything through in the first year. So guys, it's a really cool event. This is a great time to just go ahead and explain what this event is. So I'll attempt to do the thing, right? So it is eight one-kilometer runs. And in between, after each run, after each run, there is some type of, I call it an implement. I come from the CrossFit world, and so to me, it's an implement. But there is some type of workout after the one kilometer. So you run one kilometer, and then the first thing that you do is you ski. There's a ski erg, a concept to ski erg, and you ski 1000 meters. And then once you complete that, you go back and run your laps again on the course. It's the same course every time. And then you do your next implement, which just so happens to be a very heavy sled and you push the sled and then you run and then you pull the sled and you go back and forth eight rounds of this. And like he said, it's standardized. So just like the race distance for the marathon is 26.2 every time, right? <laughs> I never ran a marathon. I know it in kilometers. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I think it's 26.2 miles. Anyway, it's the same every single time. And so with this Hyrox race, the structure, just like you said, is the same where it is exactly the same distance every single time, the same number of repetitions, the same weight, et cetera. And so you can race against yourself. And I love what you said, because I came in as a consumer purely. And so went on ahead and signed up for the women's elite straight out of the gate, because I have no chill. And I look around and I think if they're doing it, I can do it. And what's funny, I'll tell you too, I didn't even know what the like weights were on things. And I didn't know what the like repetitions or distances were on things. <laughs> so I showed up to my first race in April and I'm running around this track and I didn't like look at the map. I couldn't have been less. So I always say like I stay ready. And so I'm prepared for anything. Like when I think about fitness, like I try to, and of course, mind you, longer endurance things, you need to be mindful at that point. Like have you sufficiently trained nutrition during things matters, you know? So I'm not saying go recklessly do whatever. I wouldn't go run a full marathon without training. Just, I just don't want to put myself in that position. Okay. But I did know the time domain and, and so on. I understood like, oh, this will be fine. Anyway, so I'm running the laps and then I look around and I figure out, okay, they're all numbered one, whatever. And I get to the thing and I look at the judge standing there and I'm like, all right, 
I'm just using context. And then I'm like, how far do I go? Or which weight do I pick up? That's good. So that was my first one. So it was quite funny whenever I managed to qualify for for worlds. And I was like, I knew the MC and he came over and he was like, Hey, you need to come get on the podium. And I was like, you're kidding me. You're kidding me. But that was just due to all of the preparation and my standard training that I do that it applied well there. Right. But it's a standardized race. And so then from there, I went and did the one in May and it's exactly what you said. Whenever it was like, well, what's your goal? What's your time? It's what's your time. And I say my time and then, okay, what are you trying to do? Well, I'm trying to beat previous me. I don't know. I don't know what else to do. I'm not trying to beat the champion because we are not the same, but I am trying to beat my previous time. So then I went and ran it again in November. And what was my goal? Well, I'm, I'm going to try to beat my world's time. I don't know what else, but that was the women's individual elite. And what's really cool about this event is that you also offer, there's team as well. Yes, there's the open division, which has less weight. And then there's the doubles. There we go. Doubles where you get to do it with a partner. And so you do all of the running together and then you get to split the work on the implements or the workouts. And then there's the team version and the relay. So there's all of these other variations of it. So you've got these elites that are doing the crazy stuff. That's like, guys, I train hard and it's really, really hard. It's hard. But then you scale it all the way back to all of these other variations that suddenly make it wildly approachable for anyone. And there's even adaptive. And so I have talked a ton about your event now, (laughs) in my view. So why don't you tell us a little bit more about it? (laughs) No, it's much more important that you talk about it than what I have to say about it, which is obviously mostly good things. No, but (laughs) what you're saying describes it pretty well. So we have this elite, which is every good sport, every existing good sport in the world that would say we're a legit sport has an elite, has people that do this professionally. This is just part of the game. That's what you need. You need professionals and you need grassroots. And then you need everything in between. So for us, it was very important that we have, and this is actually funny because that what you did signing up in the pros, that only happens in America. It's so funny because, and I love that about America because you would just say that I can do that, I do it. And it's the exact opposite in Europe. People would say, I really don't think I can do that. I rather do doubles first and then I test it and then I do the open women's. So in America, we have at every win, 200% of the women's pro athletes than we have compared in Europe, which is crazy. Why would you say? But that's the answer because it is, you Americans are much more like these early adopters, like not so much thinking about it, just doing it. And then maybe it was a mistake, but then so what? And here everybody's thinking everything through. You told me before that you are like a people's person and I'm also studying psychology. It's also very interesting for me also to figure these things out and to also find out differences about cultures. And I'm not saying the one thing is good or bad, right? I'm just stating a fact here. Sure, they're different. This is really interesting to see how that works across the globe. So that's really important for us to have these professionals. But then on the other hand, the accessibility, like scaling it down to the doubles is so important because just had an event in London on the very same day when we met in Dallas, we had an event in London that was sold out with 5,000 athletes, which was almost three times as big as the Dallas event. And the Dallas event was the biggest we ever had in the US. So well, it was and I will it was say good, too, right? the Dallas event was five to 600 people in April and it's November, same year, however many, six months later, something like that, 1,800. You literally more than tripled your racer, like the number of people participating in the event more than tripled. This is headed the right direction. Yeah, absolutely. I love the Dallas event. It was a really good event. I think the setup was nice. So on the same day, we had this 5,000 people event in London and that's a different ball game. Then for that number, you cannot, it wouldn't work with only the early adopters there. You need the grassroots. You need the everybody's literally. Absolutely. And that's what we had there. And for me, it's always beautiful to see these stories. This is very subjective now. And obviously it's storytelling. So this is not a massive number, but I just love when people come up to me and I had this 65 year old guy coming up in Hamburg last week, which is my hometown. And we had an event there last week. So this guy comes up to me and says, look, I just have to tell you this. I wanted to kill myself four years ago. I was literally sitting on the couch every day and I thought there's no meaning in life. My wife died. And I saw this clip about High Rocks on TV and the next morning I signed up in a fitness gym and I became vice world champion in Vegas this year. And this is what I do now. And I love my life. I love my sport. I have friends. I met this group of training people, you know. So it, I know it's a singular, just a one person story, but I have chills telling you that story right now. 
And because it's like, if we only change that one life, then I think we did a beautiful thing. And Absolutely. I don't think it's just that one life. So I'm just thankful to be able to do stuff like that. Yeah, it's such a cool thing. I actually just connected Graham with one of my friends who came and ran the event in Dallas last year. And he was in a position, he's going to, I think he's very public about this. So I'm not speaking on anything. He's not comfortable publicly speaking about him. But his story, he lost his brother. His brother was murdered. And that was one of his best friends. And so he was in a very dark season. So he came and ran the High Rocks a year ago. And it took him a very long time. It was a huge mental battle. He was not proud of his performance, but he came and did it. He came back and just ran that one in November. And he just is a different, he has done a lot of work in the last year. And he's just a different person. He's also involved in therapy. He's doing a number of different things to help his life. But this was a benchmark for him. And that was a benchmark for him. And so for him to have seen his own growth over the last year in the space of this race, to see all of this other stuff he's doing outside of the gym, sure in the gym, sure in his training, but in life in general, manifest through his performance in your sport. That's pretty cool. And so that's just one example too. And I can already see more and more storylines. So you're right. You're positively impacting people. And the fact that you have the doubles, you have the teams, you do have all of these variations of it that make it approachable. And let me also tell people that whatever version you do, you don't need to go be, I'm a little cray cray. I'm a little crazy. Okay. So as much as there's a lot of us these days that do go in, like doing any variation of this is hard. That being said, doing one of the more scaled versions is also approachable. You can do it. And so I just want that to exist out there as people consume this and learn more about this event. It seems like there's more and more certification, more and more gyms that are starting to affiliate, that are starting to offer programming specifically for training for these events. Like this is really growing worldwide. And so do you want to touch on at all any of that stuff as that's grown and there's started to be more people really specifically training for this sport and there's more stuff existing for them to focus on? Do you want to talk about that at all? Yeah, no. The thing is that gyms are such an important like accelerator for us in a way because we realized that, which is very rare nowadays, that our main marketing channel is offline because it's in the gyms because our target audience is in the gyms every day. Working with gyms and explaining the product in a way, which is, by the way, then again, this is also where the markets are separate or different. In the US, you have so many different like boutique gym solutions, I would say, right? So from the Barry's boot camps to the high cycle, soul cycle, whatever, however they're called, there are so many out there. And the entire field in Europe is not as big and not as differentiated in a way. So there are the classic gyms and the chains, and but we don't have these boutique solutions in a way, cool, hit gym studios right? like you have. So when we started here in Germany, the gyms very quickly picked up the High Rocks game. And we affiliated a lot of gyms in the first year, like, I don't know, 300, maybe even in the first year, which was a, is a big number considering that no one knew us, right? Yes, it is. So we didn't see that growth in the US at the beginning because the, just the competition is too big. There are too many things out there. So we like basically took one gear out and stepped back a little bit and started to grow a little bit more organically over the years. Obviously, then COVID hit, which was a nightmare for everyone, but also for us being an event company, if you want. But now coming back after COVID, and as you were talking about the growth from Dallas to Dallas in 22. That's what we're seeing now globally. We grew to, we had our first ever event in Asia and Hong Kong a couple of weeks ago. We're growing to Australia, Taipei, Taiwan and Greece and Italy now. And we're signing a license for South America. So this is so much fun moving forward. And, but still do not want to pretend that it's just a straight line forward that goes through the sky. We have problems and we do have a lot of things that we need to be better at. We have a daily issue with the global judging, with making this comparable, especially with the people that are doing this professionally now and that want to be pros. We have to make sure that this is a professional thing and that everybody's judged equally. And I mean, not necessarily the everybody open doubles race. If their reps are not counted correctly, that might happen. And in the end, this will not change the world of anyone, right? But sure. if we're having a pro race, it needs to be 100% clear that all the repetitions are, are correct. Standard. And that yeah, they're standardized. Standard, exactly. The funny thing is that 
this needs time on both ends because yes. obviously we have people coming from the CrossFit background. They are very familiar with all the standards of movements, right? But then there are people that are coming from a running background. They never did a wall ball in their entire life. So their technique will not look nice. Right. So they are still capable of doing it. It looks maybe different. So that's also sometimes you have to find the middle of it all and make it, as I said, accessible, but at the same time, make sure that we stick to certain rules like every sport has to. And I feel we're doing an okay job there. We have to be better every day. And we're talking about this every day yep. and trying to work on it. But the most important thing for us right now is that we see this growth. And what I love most about it is the community growth. And right. as I said, the new stories, new people showing up and, and having a good time. Yeah, the awareness is certainly expanding and, and it's expanding so rapidly. Trust me, that was something I'm definitely paying attention to because I've been doing stuff in the event space for a while. And so watching your growth and just recognizing that you guys are up against a lot of adversity in wonderful ways, right? Like the problems you're having are significant. I was talking to someone who has founded a very successful company and sold that and is now about to release to the public their second big venture. And it's a big thing, right? And so he's like, if something's not breaking every day, like I'm not doing enough. And so at the pace that you guys are growing, there are pains associated with that. And so I think that for the consumer to give a bit of grace there and understand, this is a really cool thing that's expanding so rapidly that you guys are doing the very best that you can, which I think that you're putting on a beautiful event. So it may take a little bit of time to get its feet under it in any real absolute standard way, but what a cool thing that you're building. And I am so excited to see more and more people with more and more stories like this get into it. And I appreciate it because I think you're right. It's so funny. You guys identified this hole that none of us knew existed, right? I come from the CrossFit space. So yes, judging and standards are a very big deal. And I've taken the judges certification course. And I used to work for and, and work with a, a guy that is very serious about that stuff. So I'm well-versed there, but the general consumer, no, like they don't come from that world, but you'll get there. That stuff, as the awareness grows and as the love for the sport goes, there will be more and more people who will come to understand the standards and want to give back to this thing that gave them this community. And that's a really exciting thought. And so you guys are offering through the website. Am I correct in saying that through the website, they can find this thing called the PFT that you guys offer all over the place, certainly within the US. I know without outside of the US, but since so much of my listener base is US-based, you guys can see the events are held in a lot of the large cities in the US throughout the year. And places like Dallas host two of them a year but they're all over the US. And then there are also all of these PFTs that are going on, which is this physical fitness test. So it's like a condensed version. So somebody that represents Hyrox is there and it's a Hyrox event. And so anyway, those are things that they can find where those are happening and when they can find that stuff on your website, right? Exactly. Yeah. That's the first touch they can get with Hyrox experiencing this. It's also like a free offer from us for the gyms to know you to host like this first taste of high rocks in their gyms, which is very important for us. Yeah. And anyone who is listening to this, who is a gym facility owner, especially within the US, if you have questions about this, I will say I can certainly point you in the right direction. So if you actually want to even just certainly reach out to high rocks, but also you can just reach out to me via DMs or anything like that. Or if you've got email me, whatever, I'm more than happy to help be a connector to get them in touch with you guys, because setting up those PFTs is a really good entry point for people to become aware of the event. So I'm just so excited to see where it goes. I think it's been really cool. I remember going to it earlier this year and I knew there was a lot of, the US was a very uncertain thing for you guys for a moment because of all of that struggle and you needed to see the growth. And so I was like, I'm just gonna wait and see what happens here. I'm just gonna observe. And it's been so freaking cool to be like, oh my gosh, guys, it's working. It's working. And people that you have involved in it, I will say Danielle Gertner, she's one of your, she leads people out out here in the US and her impact on their mindset before they start the race is powerful. And then the MCs do a beautiful job. And so there's just so many things about this that make it a really fun event going and running through where all the spectators are and their hype consistently to keep you moving as this grows, even just from April to November. It was just like, whoa. And it was so cool. I'm running through that area and people are like yelling my name. And I'm like, shit, I got to try. Okay, don't look. <laughs> but it also <laughs> made it so much more fun. And it was like, I got this like turbo boost. Every time I ran through that area, it was like a turbo boost. So it's exciting because the reality is this is probably just going to keep growing. And that's just going to get I hope bigger so. and better. <laughs> so 
Okay. I wanted to ask you, and I think you did actually touch on that. What is something that you're doing? You feel that you're doing well, that you would like to be doing more of or better. And this actually can be anywhere in life. Oh, okay. If it's anywhere in life, then I would start absolutely not organized enough. I never had any whatever PA or system or whatever um, as support, and I don't want that, but I still need to work on structuring myself better, which is probably something that many people struggle with, but I'm one of the worst. That's definitely something I don't know exactly how, but I will and want to work on. And then from a Hyrox perspective, I think because the growth has been so fast and I'm a team player, I'm a team person, I can only survive in teams. I think we need to be structurally as the company, I need to organize our team better and have more structure inside the team who's responsible for what also, because due to the growth, you basically don't find the time to work on the very, very substantial structure that sits behind that. So everybody's working full time and way beyond that. And I feel like growth is important, but sometimes not the most important thing. And you have to see that this is still a healthy environment. And I feel like there, there I can do a better job moving into 2023, which is a very good thing, but we don't see that growth being reduced at the moment. It's the opposite rather. I expect the 2023 events to be at least 50, 60% bigger than the 2022 events. So the growth is still there. And that's something that I'm very thoughtful of. Yeah. Having the infrastructure behind the scenes to support the thing. And with that, all of that growth, so that means new personnel and more personnel. And then where do we put them and what do they do? And all of the communication within the systems that that way everyone feels there's a lot to that. I'll actually uh, connect with you after this too, just because I know a guy that's building a company that has wonderful thoughts on this sort of thing. And it's all within the same wellness. But anyway, I think it'd be a great connection. And he's done a ton of work on this thing. That's his role within the company that he's a part of, but all of the coaching that he has utilized as a resource to be able to help him navigate personnel stuff behind the curtain. Anyway, I'll connect to you because that stuff is all super, super relevant. You want those people that you're bringing on board to feel like they have a clear understanding of what it is that they're doing. And in order for that to occur, you need to know what they're doing. Like those are big issues, but they are wonderful issues. Like what wonderful issues, to, what wonderful problems to be dealing with. Thank you for doing <laughs> yeah. them. Keep doing them, <laughs> but also one day at a time. <laughs> That's true. Okay. So I always like to ask as well, anyone that exists within the wellness space, which you certainly qualify, you have built in conjunction with your friends, the world series of fitness racing. What does your diet and nutrition look like today? It's probably healthier than ever before, I have to say. Okay. And that's also thanks to, really thanks to Hyrox, because when I quit playing, you know, being a hockey player, I, I didn't really have that motivation to go to the gym. Going to the gym was a must for me all my life. So when I didn't have to do it anymore, I was like, oh, perfect. I will never do this again. Never, right. ever. And then when we started High Rocks, I did the very first event in 2017, just because that was kind of the obvious call to do it when someone had to test it. So I was still the athlete side. So and now I started focusing on doubles. I do doubles and I love it. I'm a runner rather than the workout guy. So the doubles for me is perfect. I can run and have only half of the workouts. So that very much suits me. And I have to say that I'm doing the, we call it 16-8. Does that exist? Uh, that term exists? So Is eight hours of eating. Intermittent fasting. Intermittent fasting, exactly. So I would start eating 1 p.m. And usually I have lunch at one in the office around in a restaurant across the street. And then I would eat more or less, except for fruits, nothing in between, and then have dinner. But that could be anything. That sometimes would be like, unhealthy stuff or healthy stuff that depends a little bit on the mood and the day. So I'm not like, you know, forcing myself. But I think for me, that works pretty well. I go to the gym every morning at 8 a.m. I'm in the gym every morning. And well, nutrition, I do not drink enough water and I do drink too much coffee. But that's maybe a little bit the office job uh, problem, the classic office job problem. But apart from that, I have to say for the last year, I've been probably living healthier than, than ever before. So it's a good question. A good time to ask me that question. <laughs> Get to speak with professionals within the fitness space often, within the wellness in general space, 
often hear. And I always love asking that question because there are different seasons for each individual. Like we have different seasons of life and I'm always curious what season you're in. And then also just to like acknowledge and understand that like it gets to be different at different times. And as long as you're prioritizing movement in some way, it doesn't have to be the intense season. It can be more chill. So, okay. What are three things that you are grateful for today? Absolutely. My, let's say, friends are very grateful for the bubble I live in. So I rather call it bubble because that's not only my friends, that's also the people I have worked with and the people that I'm surrounded with. I could not be more grateful for that. Second of all, I'm very grateful for my mom because as I said before, I mean, she basically brought up two young boys that had a lot of things in their mind, but not really appreciating their mother when they were teenagers. So looking back at it now, that's probably the number one, but I now mentioned it twice. Maybe that's the wrong order. Then I have to say that I don't know if, if you can be grateful for that, but I'm just grateful that I, that sounds strange, but probably that's a little bit cocky even because it means almost means I'm grateful for some things that I did myself because I'm grateful that I could do the things that I like to do. And that has to do with the fact that I always did what I wanted to do. But I put myself in a position where I'm able to do the things that I love to do. And I'm very grateful for that, if that counts. <laughs> I think it does. You had opportunity, but you still did the work to be in the room. And that's, I totally, totally, I actually was just having a conversation with someone yesterday about having moved to Austin in June of this year, the end of June, and how the opportunity that exists here is very real and how I've been able to seize that. And it's just been this beautiful thing and recognizing and understanding the fortune that exists within my world, the fact that I get to be somewhere like that, but then also acknowledging the reality that I have to do the work to be in the room. And so we can look at both and be super grateful for all of those things, but also understand that you still have to show up as the version of yourself that gets to be there. Okay. Three things that I am grateful for. One, I am grateful for the fact that here in Austin, it's warm. Like it's warm right now. And I'm like, I'm vibing with that. That's nice. I am grateful for technology because you're in Germany right now. And I'm in Texas right now in the U S and the fact that we can here be here and have this call and do this thing from different locations on the globe is like pretty dope. And so I'm grateful for that. And then the third thing that I am grateful for is definitely also, I just can't help it, the community, community, being around people who show up for other people, getting to know today that showing up for other people is going to be a worthwhile thing in my life. And so whether I'm in the mood to do it or not is pretty irrelevant. I still just need to show up for other people. Like having that awareness today is something that I'm super grateful for. So where can the audience find and support you and support High Rocks? Yeah. Support High Rocks. Yeah. yeah, no, I mean, the community of High Rocks lives very much on Instagram, I have to say. There's a US channel, there's a global channel and all the other locations as well. And otherwise, if it's a rather B2B connection, it lives on LinkedIn or we have a TikTok channel that we're just building up now. But apart from that, it lives at the events, I have to say. So now the 10th of December will be the last event in 2022 in Los Angeles. Then we are back in Chicago in the beginning of February. So yeah, can't wait. And then in the end of February, you're going to be in Houston, Texas. So okay, guys, all of the details about where you can find and support Mo and High Rocks will be in the show notes. So just head down there to find access to those things. And I just want to say that one, Mo, thank you so much for your time. Your time is valuable and I appreciate the opportunity to have some of it. And if you are listening and you feel like you got value out of this episode, I would so appreciate if you would follow the show, if you would rate and review it wherever you're listening to it, if you would also share it with someone that you think is going to get value out of it, that would mean the world to me. And then other than that, we just hope that you have a beautiful day.